0: Welcome everyone to Rebooting Education in the Post-Pandemic Era, sponsored by the Hoover Education Success Initiative at the Hoover Institution of Stanford University. The series is the outgrowth of a set of essays about the challenges and opportunities for improving public education coming out of the COVID-19 pandemic. How to improve our schools in the post-pandemic era which which can be found on the HESI homepages on the Hoover website. This six-part series ran weekly at this hour and today is the last session we saved the last the best for last on the topic of has school accountability outlived its shelf life. I'm Melanie Barton I serve as a senior education advisor for Governor McMaster and here in South Carolina I also was the executive director of the South Carolina Education Oversight Committee, an independent, nonpartisan legislative committee that comprised of educators, civic leaders, business leaders who are responsible for approving our state's standards, assessments, and accountability. I have an esteemed panel that I'd like to introduce now, starting off with Secretary James Pizer from the state of Massachusetts. Jim directs the Executive Office of Education in Massachusetts, which oversees early childhood education, K-12 and higher education. He is Governor Charlie Baker's most senior education advisor. He chaired the Massachusetts Board of Education from 1999 to 2006, has advised several other governors and has served as the managing director of New Schools Venture Fund. Welcome today, Jim, from Massachusetts. We also have Michael Kurse from Stanford University. Mike is Professor Emeritus of Education and Business Administration at Stanford. He is the longest serving president of California State Board of Education, having served four terms from 1975 to 1982, and again from 2011 to 2019. He's had a multifaceted education career, including Governor Jerry Brown's top education advisor. And we also have Chester Finn, Hoover Education Success Initiative panelist with us today. Checker is a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution and member of Hesse's steering committee, as well as president emeritus of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Author of HESI's white paper on assessment and accountability His career has included service as Assistant U.S. Secretary of Education and on the Maryland State Board of Education. Welcome Checker.
1: Thank you very much.
0: Um, We'll have a set of question and answer session with our panelists for about 35 minutes and then turn to audience questions. If you'd like to pose a question, please use the question format in the Zoom and all questions will be be, uh, checked for clarity and repetition. We look forward to a lively hour ahead and it's time to kick off this great panel. So I want the panelists to kick off the discussion by giving uh, answering a question that I think will help you to understand their involvement and expertise with school accountability. So for each of the panelists, I'm gonna ask you to respond to this question. How has your own work education, past and present, advanced or regressed or otherwise intersected with the evolution of school accountability. Um, Checker, let's start with you on this question, if you don't mind.
1: Well, I'm gonna show my old age here because I feel like I've been intersecting with this topic for a a bunch of decades now, really going back to the uh, birth of the National Assessment of Educational Progress, NAEP in the 60s and 70s, the um, Nation at Risk, the uh agitation of governors in the mid 80s because they had no data on how their states were doing even though they've been told their states were at risk and they didn't know quite what to do about it except it involved somehow fixing their schools um the rebirth of of nape with state level reporting for the first time uh in 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 1988 the, the 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 charlesville summit uh the year after that um and then uh We fast forward to the national goals, uh, which said every kid's supposed to be proficient. Well, how are you going to know if your kid is proficient if you don't have metrics? And how do you know if the school is producing kids who are proficient if you don't have mechanisms? And what are you going to do about it if they're not? So um, going on to No Child Left Behind. um, And... uh, and then, in it's both its good and bad incarnations, and the uh, race to the top, and Essa and my own struggles on the Maryland State Board of Education to uh, help, see if Maryland could come up with a decent accountability plan under Essa, which for the most part, I don't think we succeeded with. Um, the perils of leaving it to the states entirely. But uh, so I, I've, I've been living with this for a long time, even before Hesse came along.
0: Great, thank you. Jim. Let's hear your experience there in Massachusetts and, and your work in education accountability.
2: Well, thank you and thanks for, uh, thanks for having me here today. Uh, I mean, it's a loaded question in terms of whether I've had a positive or a negative effect on it all. I guess i guess will have to leave it to others to decide about that. But uh, when I first joined the Board of Education back in 1995, which sounds like a long, long time ago until, check, until Checker started talking, um, we were just two years out from enacting our State Education Reform Act, uh, and we were still in the process of developing curriculum frameworks or standards and hadn't yet begun working on MCAS, our state assessment, which didn't roll out for the first time until like 1998. Um, and it was only after I became chairman of the board in '99 that we were able to put the first school and district accountability system in place. Um, in 2010, After I left the board, the legislature enacted something called the Achievement Gap Act, which clarified and strengthened the departments or the board's ability to intervene in low-performing schools and districts. And by the time I rejoined the board as Secretary of Education in 2015, we were in the process of evaluating PARC versus our own MCAS. We ultimately decided to stay with MCAS uh, primarily in order to ensure control over our test items even though we ended up incorporating much of the park design principles into our sort of MCAS 2.0. And once we made that decision, uh, and in light of ESSA, we updated our accountability system to put a higher premium on improvement, uh, and especially among the bottom quartile uh, in each school and district. Of course, uh, the way in which we measure school performance is only half of the accountability equation. The other half is what do we do when we find a school or a district is underperforming? And in, uh, in 2004, we placed the first individual school into receivership or chronically underperforming status as we call it. Uh, and today there are something like four schools, I think that are considered to be chronically underperforming. Dozens of schools have been declared just, just underperforming, not chronically underperforming uh, throughout the years, which means that they are subject to closer oversight and are eligible for additional resources and technical supports. Uh, but they're not technically under the, uh, under the full control of the state. Uh, and many of these have subsequently exited that status, and some of them have closed. And today, there are more than 20 schools that are considered to be underperforming. Um, I wasn't on the board when the state uh, placed Lawrence into receivership in 2012. That's a school district. Um, but I was secretary um, and on the board when we placed Holyoke and Southbridge into receivership. Uh, And also when we modified Lawrence's receivership to place the district under control of sort of an autonomous board rather than simply a superintendent or receiver appointed directly by the state commissioner. So those are sort of at least the the intersection points uh, that I've had uh, across the last 28 years or so um, related more directly to school
3: accountability.
0: Thank you, Jim. Mike, tell us of your experience and your work there in California.
3: Yes, well I came back as a state board president in 2011 when Jerry Brown was re-elected uh, the two of us uh, ended up 40 years apart in our second term from our first term so we hoped we learned a little bit some of the distinctive things that we worked on were the idea of a dashboard we were into moldable indicators before uh, essa was passed and uh, it Found that uh, if you had these moldable indicators that our uh, parents and our uh, the various uh, community groups could understand moldable indicators that you didn't have to reduce it to A and F, which drew the ire of former Governor uh, Bush and uh, Florida, uh, that you had to have a single number. Uh, yes, if people can. To look at the five things like they can look at their car dashboard and make a, an understanding of it, and I think that's helped underpin accountability, sustainability uh, in California. Uh, we're a member of the Smarter Balanced Assessment com- uh, Consortium, uh, which has uh, is a computer adaptive test has uh, chances for students to. Uh, go in, defend their answers. It's interactive. And uh, we have an hour and a half performance exam uh, at the the high school and an hour at the elementary school. Very deep assessment. Uh, uh, The states are all over the map now on what their assessments are. And I keep pleading with think tanks and others, just what are the states doing? I don't know what these assessments look like. Uh, I know what ours looks like, but we're only about 12 states, so that was important uh, in, that, uh, in that regard. The um, main thing that uh, I think uh, that we didn't do in accountability was to balance our, the capacity building of to build up our teaching force and our instructional leadership cadre to really meet what accountability was telling us were our problems. So as you ratchet up accountability that much, I think you have to bring your capacity building up that much as well. We didn't do that. Uh, and I think that's really something now I'm working on uh, through the Learning Policy Institute. I'm studying Canada, for example, Ontario, Canada, uh, which reached 5,000 schools. So I think we need to look at that as, a, as an important uh, area in the future. So, I. I th- uh, I think we built some stronger linkages as well with our higher education institutions where they were looking at the K-12 assessment for college placement. And I think those uh, higher ed sending signals that what you're doing in K-12 accountability is important is I think another undergirding thing that helped us. So it's a work in progress. Uh, I don't think accountability is a, uh, outrun its shelf life in California, but we're under some big changes coming, which I'm sure we'll discuss.
0: That, that's a great segue into the next question, Mike, because we're interested in knowing, you know, you brought up the question, has accountability outlived its shelf life, especially in the current ESSA form, or does it need an overhaul, an abolition, or doubling down? You mentioned um, the, the issue about other states. We haven't really learned what other states have done and what they've done well. And that's a fire drill, I do believe, on my other side. Uh, Jim, can you respond to that question? Have we outlived our shelf life?
2: Well, I don't, uh, I, short answer is I don't think we have. Um, I mean, I, I, at some level, I don't think the current accountability system per se within the ESSA framework is broken. Uh, it's just not a panacea. And I think in some ways, our expectations always exceed the reality. And that's why people get um, sort of exercised about uh, much of this is that there are that somehow they've been sold a bill of goods that if we just put an accountability system in place, everything will be better. And that's really not the case at all. Um, And put another way, I still think standards-based reform is necessary, but not a sufficient strategy for school improvement. Um, And people who complain about the current system seem to forget what things were like before state and federal accountability systems were put into place, sort of as if all children used to excel in school and went on to, you know, great success in college. Before no child left behind. Uh, unfortunately, I think you know a nation at risk, which Checker referred to earlier um, and uh, notes in his paper as well, captured the state of play pretty well back, uh, pretty well uh, back then. Even if it was a bit uh, dramatic when it talked about, you know, how if a foreign enemy had imposed this education system on us, we'd consider it an act of war. Um, I mean, that doesn't mean it can't be improved. You know, the accountability system, SO, what have you, can't be improved. But I think especially the focus should be at the state level. Although I'm a big proponent of MCAS and I think, uh, you know, our state assessment in Massachusetts and I think the complaints about testing and, and, and so-called overtesting are overblown. Um, I do think we need to continue to look at ways to improve our statewide assessments in order to make them less burdensome and more timely and more supportive of teach- teaching and learning and also better sources of useful diagnostic information. I think Checker's paper suggests some useful approaches in that direction. But when all is said and done, you know the biggest challenge we have isn't on the measurement side um, uh, or the metric side, it's on the side of effective and sustainable improvement strategies or capacity building, as Mike was talking about. Um, and that goes way beyond how and when the state intervenes in our lowest performing schools and districts or what our measurement system is or what our uh, you know, rating system is for schools and districts. And so I guess all of that is to say that I don't think we should necessarily be spending much energy uh, on overhauling ESSA um, and should instead look to the states primarily to improve and innovate mostly within the existing federal framework.
0: Great. Checker, follow up on that comment. That's a great segue.
1: Well, I don't think I disagree with any, anything Jim just said. Let's say that. Uh, let me uh, let me see. I also don't believe much in shelf life. I found that uh, the milk and yogurt and cottage cheese are generally good for many weeks after those dates <laughs> that are printed on the boxes, um, and you don't have to throw it out just because it had yesterday's sell-by date on it. Um, I think as we talk about the future of accountability, let's please keep in mind that we're in the middle of an accountability hiatus, a kind of an accountability holiday right now, um, triggered by the federal government's testing holiday in 2020 and what amounts to its accountability holiday in 2021. Um, and so I really do think the very first question is are we going to get back to it um to actually what is expected under ESSA which is still the law of the land or are people including federal officials possibly state officials possibly uh, going to be so accustomed to life without meaningful accountability thanks to uh COVID and these holidays that uh, they say well we're doing fine without it and anyway the kids have been suffering and uh Uh, Some of them have a lot of ground to catch up, so let's continue the holiday. Um, I do think that's a a clear and present um, uh, issue that we ought to be very mindful of. If we are resuming serious results-based accountability uh, for schools and possibly for kids and districts, then I do think we can look to the future uh, with a bunch of ideas for how it might be uh, more expansive and better and m- maybe more effective than the current ESA law and the way it's being implemented uh, in many places. So I'm happy to consider um, improvements if we are able to look beyond ESSA. But right at this moment, I'm a little panicked about whether ESA. Um, still has traction or whether we're gonna remain on holiday for the foreseeable future.
0: Yeah, Mike, what, follow up with that question. What What are your thoughts on this? Has it outlived its life, Essa.
3: Yes, well, I, I think coming from a strongly uh, state uh, to the left of center, uh, you know, voted uh, uh, about uh, 65% uh, for Biden. Uh, Accountability has deep political roots here. Uh, the the uh, advocacy communities for low-income people, uh, for uh, various uh, groups of uh, racial ethnic groups, uh, some to some extent the business community, and parents uh, generally is strong and able, I think, to sustain uh, it. Uh, I think we need to look at two different major changes and I'm not, I don't know how to do these, but uh, I just uh, tuned out of the education commission of the state's annual meeting where uh, the other states were talking about the same thing we're talking about. How can we make, for example, how can we make our assessments relative to classroom instruction? What I've learned in all these years, if you're not changing instruction, you're not doing that much. And so, how right now well, we give interim tests, but they don't tell teachers how to reteach and what to do. So, can we redesign the system to have what, which is more teacher-led formative assessment? Formative assessment. Can we do that and link it more to statewide assessment? In other words, as somebody said today at ECS come alongside what teachers are doing, not just layer something on top and make it expressly a linkage between state assessment and, and teaching and learning in the classroom. Uh, I think that's the next frontier. I don't think ESA hinders that in any way. Uh, the states that are experimenting with this, like Louisiana today, uh, that I talk with. They're not being hindered by ESSA. So I think that's important. The other is something uh, Checker hinted in on in his paper for Hoover, which is an old concept called opportunity to learn. Students can't learn if they're not presented with with a strong instruction. How can we find out whether they they're have the opportunity to learn? Uh, so uh that uh that that calls to getting behind the classroom door and finding out more what is actually being taught they're not being taught something they're not likely to learn it so i think these are some of the new dimensions that we're trying to figure out and i think those are important to figure them out
2: Melanie, I, is it okay if i jump in for just please please, um, please. Both, uh responding to both checker and mike uh, so uh, we here in Massachusetts, we were able to sustain our testing program this current uh, or just the previous school year, but that was, you know, that was a, a close thing, I think, in a lot of ways. And it feels like it was a critical decision on our part to keep the to keep the forward motion happening. Otherwise, uh, we could never restart it. Um, and, you know, I think we're still struggling with that. But we we did actually we were able to implement Um, in a modified form, our testing program last spring. I think that was critically important. Um, So I think a real pause would be a real problem. Um, uh, By the same token, uh, interestingly enough, Massachusetts is just as liberal as California. I I, I think we may have even voted in a higher percentage for Joe Biden than California. Um, But I would say accountability is less well uh, or deeply embedded in the sort of broader political context. We've had strong leadership support in the governor's office and in the legislature for you know now 28 years um but when you get down to uh sort of the sort of the next level of uh, of the political establishment as well as the more community-based um sort of organizations and parent groups and 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 other sort of stakeholders uh I, unfortunately i feel that our roots are pretty thin in the, in the ground so i I am you know, I'm constantly concerned that we may lose uh, we may lose a lot of ground if we uh, run into a bump in the road that's a little bit too, um, too problematic. And in, in some cases, Mike, some of the things that you're suggesting, which uh, have been talked about for a while about trying to sort of bring a summative assessment sort of more fully into the classroom and in a more formative or interim way, uh, I, you know, I fear will just sound like more testing to the to the folks out in the world and will generate uh, a backlash that will threaten, you know, whatever we've got in place right now, which is not to say that what you're talking about isn't a great idea. But the more the state is looking behind the classroom door, I feel the more, um, you know, politically fraught that's going to
0: be. Right. This is a good segue into talking about checkers. Uh, report that he did the latest paper on arguing for accountability 3.0 because chair can you kind of go through what your position on that and you do you still stand by your comment six months later after the pandemic uh
1: yeah arguably even even more so so many kids have lost so much ground uh, and so many gaps that were already problematic have gotten wider during this time um and um so I, I the first point again is to um, is to resume uh, results-based accountability. Um, and the second point is to perfect it. And uh, the paper, uh, which I appreciate people apparently having read, um, tries to chart a future course, mostly beyond ESSA, but some of these things could easily be done with within ESSA. Um, some of the changes are, are large. For example, I do think that we should be uh, finding a way to shift from a uh, focus on proficiency to an actual focus on preparedness of kids for the next step in life, uh, rather than just some bar on the, on the, on the, on the test scale. Um, are they actually ready for high school to succeed? Are they actually ready for college, career, whatever? Um, And uh, I think that should begin to become our focus much more than than test scores. Uh, I also believe that we um, ought to be striving hard for broader indicators of learning and of school effectiveness than just test scores. Uh, We are one of the reasons people uh, get unhappy about testing is that uh, not so much that we're doing too much of it, it's that it looms too large in our judgments about schools. And we're aware of so many things that we really do care about schools doing with kids and for kids uh, that tests really don't tell us much of anything about. I mean, we care about character. We care about citizenship. We care about creativity. We care about care about social, emotional well-being. We care about character development. Um, there's a whole lot of things that um, school climate um And yet we don't have good um, ways of measuring these that stand up to any kind of standard of validity, reliability, and incorruptibility, if I may. Uh, And so we don't know how to work those into our judgments about schools. Mike's dashboard dashboard tries to get at some of them Um, and he can tell us more about about how that works, but uh, I think we, the country as a whole needs to think about additional uh, gauges of, of student learning and of, and of school performance. But I also think that doesn't take the place of testing. Indeed, maybe the most uh, uh, provocative part of the paper is really the suggestion that we need to do some more testing. Um, I've become a huge believer in kindergarten readiness testing as a baseline for everything that follows against which um, um, progress can be gauged in the early grades. I think that waiting for third grade as ESSA does to wait to check on reading and math is too late. Um, I think that uh, um, focusing only on reading and math is too narrow. Uh, I do believe in end of course exams in the high school and even the middle school uh, courses and in a lot of subjects. And not just academic subjects, also the tech voc uh, um, type of type of courses. Um, and then I believe that um, if you've got this broader gauge of information about what what kids are learning in the school, uh, you can then begin to not only have diplomas that are more more that mean something something important, but you can also have um, much better gauges of school effectiveness. Uh, than what we've been relying on so far as've uh, as we've been, uh, uh, as we've been uh, trying to implement Essa. Um, the stickiest wicket, as Jim said earlier, always with accountability, is so what do you do if the results yeah. aren't satisfactory? Mm-hmm. And um, and let's make important footnote, uh, if the results are great, you also need to find ways of rewarding. Um, uh, schools and kids and districts that are doing a fantastic job. It shouldn't just be a should, shouldn't just be a negative, hostile kind of kind of gotcha um, approach to uh, education governance. But our biggest concern, of course, is with kids that aren't learning and gaps that are widening and schools that are that are persistently doing a poor job of educating their students. And then what do you do? And our intervention efforts mostly haven't worked very well, frankly. We do need to pay more attention to the capacity kinds of issues that, uh, that Mike was alluding to. Um, I worry a little as we dig into opportunity to learn issues that uh, we risk um, ending up refocused on inputs rather than results and getting that balance right I think is not, not, a, not a small challenge. Um, I also, I've also come to believe, this is gonna sound very Hoover-like, Um, that um, giving kids exit visas and alternatives um, is another way to deal with underperforming schools, which is to say school choice. Um, It's easier to let kids leave bad schools than to fix bad schools. Um, And uh, at least, and it can work if we provide the means for them to go to better schools when they leave the bad schools. So I think that um, uh, various forms of school choice ought to be a Uh, intervention, so to speak, as well as efforts to um, fix and correct and do continuous improvement uh, in the existing schools that are um, not as good as they should be. I can keep going, but I think that's plenty for the moment.
0: (laughs) Um, I think all of us that have worked in accountability, it's all these checks and balances that we, we talk about. We talk about what we measure and what we count changes behavior, sometimes good, sometimes badly um it, there's so many nuances to this but but you've all focused on a, a key part is how do you use accountability to ensure what's going on in the classroom which is student learning is the most important because that's what we're all here is to improve student learning and student outcomes so mike respond to checkers um comments i'd love to hear your feedback
3: well and and we have one of our indicators in California is called a college, college and career indicator, and uh, which relates, of course, to high schools in this case. Uh, but we use a number of factors, including, of course, whether they qualify for the course requirements for the universities. How many students are doing, are doing that? By the way, that's on a trend like that just going up. I mean, that's one of the unhidden success stories I think of public education is that we are getting more students prepared and ready to go to college. And uh, until the pandemic hit our college uh, completion rates were going up. So that's one. And then we look at the quality of uh, the sequences of the career and tech courses uh, and between high school and high school and colleges we look at dual enrollment, which is growing dramatically. Uh, in some ways, the best way to understand a college course and standards is to take one, take a course at the college level. So I think that's one thing. Um, I like to end of course too, but many states that had them, including California, repealed them. Uh, it was all a rage about 10 to 20 years ago. You remember that in I, I I don't know why that went away. I think it was, of course, partly the overtesting issue. But I think that uh, that is worth trying to look at again. But I, I'm not sure we that has the political support that it does. Uh, another thing that uh, I ponder is uh, the elimination of SAT, ACT in many states. 75 uh, percent of the students uh, last year didn't take SAT or ACT for college admissions. They may have taken it because the state was required. Like, uh, and what is that doing? How does that play into this? That was always a a competitive thing between our K-12 test and the college tests. uh, And I think that's uh, very important. What will happen with that? Will that come back? I don't know. It was not coming back in California. That's pretty clear. Uh, not for at least five to ten years in my view and so uh, I think that's one that we need to ponder and I don't quite understand the implications of that uh, so I think I think on the opportunity to learn that uh, what I talked about was what's being per, what contents and, and skills and uh, other things are being presented to students uh, uh, that's that's less test, that's not really a testing. That's really, and I don't know how to find it out on a massive scale, but I have done research with Andy Porter at University of Pennsylvania, and we have surveys that can establish that in some ways as in terms of what uh, teachers are teaching. So those are some comments on those.
0: Jim, tell us about the future of accountability that you see in Massachusetts, especially coming out of the pandemic. Uh
3: well, I wish I,
2: could, I wish I could project that. Let, let, me, let me first sort of respond a little bit to Checker's paper and his, and his summary of it um, just a few moments ago. I mean, I, I do find myself in agreement with just about everything that's in there, um, but I'm, I am afraid sort of coming back to a, a previous theme here that the practical and the political obstacles that he identifies in the, in the paper are all too real. Um, And that we're in particular right now, we're not in a moment when a comprehensive or even a multi pronged accountability reform is possible or desirable, especially if legislation or some other sort of political act is required, because I'm afraid once we begin to open that Pandora's box, we may end up in a very bad place. Um, I mean, you know, in, of course, exams is kind of interesting um, example because uh, I went to, I grew up in New York, went to high school at a public high school in New York, and my end of course math test and biology test was a regent's exam. So, I mean, this is like going back to the future, but, uh, if we were today, I think, at least in Massachusetts, I think this is probably true in a lot of other places to, uh, have an end of course exam that more uh, specifically uh, for lack of a better word, dictated the content of those courses. Uh, I'm afraid we'd be fighting a tongue war with uh, educators and other advocates um, in a way that uh, is even w- would even make the the wars about assessment uh, seem a little bit tame. So, uh, so I think there's I, again, I, I I wish it were otherwise. And obviously, even getting to the or, or getting to the subject of of uh, greater parental choice, or more charter schools, or more or more options uh, for parents to choose from, is you know we all know the politics of that, and that's certainly played out here in Massachusetts. But I th- I think an area that holds uh, a lot of promise, I think, is actually uh, in keeping with some of what you were saying, Mike, as well as uh, some of the things that you recommend, Checker. Um, and, and also which may offer the promise of being a little bit less controversial um, is to create a more different, more differentiation at least at the high school level um, with new or expanded sort of cohort based pathways that are more explicitly tied to post-secondary education and employment. So whether it's early college or career technical education broadly defined. So in other words, not just vocational or occupational uh, training I think there's a lot of opportunity to create more competency based, more outcome based graduation requirements that might be more measurable uh, and also more grounded in meaningful external standards um, that might be, you know, a little bit more non negotiable. So, in other words, they're not being, these aren't standards that are being established by educators, but they're being established by employers uh, or, or, or by colleges. Um, and therefore maybe a little less political. So anyway, that may be naive to believe that that's true, Um, but I do think to the extent that, and again, I think this is consistent with some of the points that Checker was making, that we're able to anchor uh, a a high school educational experience to something that's really externally defined in terms of what the outcomes and competencies are or need to be for for a a graduate to become successful.
0: Great points, great points. So I'm going to, the last question for the panel as we discuss this is, so kind of going forward, do you think we stay with an ESSA form or do you think there's any hope that we go back to a a system of accountability for all the states that's a little bit more uniform? Um, Mike started off by saying, you know, I'm not really sure what other states are doing. Uh, It's hard to compare um, I, I tried to do that when I was at the Education Oversight Committee. I've read all your accountability proposals, Essa and I still had questions about it. But is there anything that we, can, can states like Massachusetts and California and then very conservative states like South Carolina, can we all agree on certain measures that all students should be held accountable to throughout the country? And I'll start with you, Mike, on that question.
3: I don't know. I sort of doubt it. Uh, I don't. I don't see the political uh, groundswell to move back to uniform federal standards. Uh, if that's going to happen, I think it's farther out in the future uh, than at the, at this time. Uh, I think we're, uh, in California, very supportive of a particular assessment, smarter balanced. We think it's better than uh, would, that would happen at the lowest common denominator of the federal system. So we would resist it uh, <laughs> on that base. Of, and, and I think the diversity that's out there, it's gonna be hard to put that uh, uh, reverse that, uh, that direction. Uh, I, I did wanna say something on Checker's exit of the issue. The, the, the landscape is changing dramatically. California is projected to lose 700,000 students at the end of the next 500 years, five years, I'm sorry, five years. <laughs> uh, and that's a huge number. And uh, this is because change in our birth rates, uh, particularly in this, uh, among uh, uh, Hispanic uh, uh, parents. So there's going to be a lot more spaces out there and these school districts are already worried about our uh, f- system of finance that you lose uh, your money if students go away. So there's going to be all of all of these public places that are uh, public schools that might want more students. Uh, in the past, the argument was, well, there's no place to put them. Well, there's going to be a lot of place to put them in California. So uh, maybe that kind of... Uh, movement has more uh, steam behind it than uh, I think national standards and and going back
0: how about you checker what do you think
1: well I was gonna
3: say to Mike
1: I was previously was only talking about exiting from one school to another but apparently they're exiting the whole state of California mm-hmm. uh, the uh, that's a different level of exit um, I you know we tried for shared standards, and it was called Common Core, and actually it was going great until the federal government got involved with it. So I don't know if we can do that again, because that may be tainted as an idea. Um, the, we, we tried almost national tests with these two consortia, um, the Smarter Balanced uh, and the PARC. And uh, Smarter Balanced is still, I think Mike said, 17 states at the present time. I think parks down to a much smaller number. Um, many states are doing their own thing on testing as somebody's already pointed out. Uh, I think the closest thing we have to a national test right now, frankly, is NAEP, which I incidentally believe could be a whole lot more useful to the country um, if it produced more state level results and more, eight, and more 12th grade results. Um, and, um, I, it won't get down to the building level, but I think we would learn a whole lot more about how our kids are doing at the state level than we're getting out of NAEP today. Um, the, uh, I don't think anybody wants the NCLB kind of, um, mandatory cascade of school sanctions that, um, NCLB required of people. It was so odd in retrospect that you would have Every state set its own standards, every state pick its own test, and then have this mandatory set of things you do to low-performing schools, Um, having uh, let the states do all these other things their own way. Um, I don't think anyone wants to go back to the mandatory cascade of of interventions. So I think, um, broadly speaking, an ESSA framework, which is to say states uh, have a lot of say about how they're going to do this, is it should be with us. But I do believe that doesn't mean the current uh, uh, uh things that essa seeks um are ought to be ought to be permanent. I do think as I said a few minutes ago we could do a lot better in that regard. And I, I and I hope before we're done, Melanie, you'll tell us something about how things actually look in South Carolina. Um, we're all we're all deep blue here,
0: except you. <laughs> you got well I'll I'll end on that, but let me go to Jim first. I'll be happy to. Jim tell me do you think we can? I mean, here in South Carolina, we aspire to have the outcomes that you have in Massachusetts. So, can we have as any kind of common accountability measures across states?
2: Well, uh, so, you know, Massachusetts likes to be number one. That's a nice uh, benefit of the NAEP scores. Um, but honestly, you know, other than pat ourselves on the back, I don't know what we do with that information. Uh, and I'm not sure what others do, you know, if they determine that they're you know, number 12 or number 57 or probably not more 57, 47. <laughs> um, so uh, you know, I think that the, what NAEP at least provides is a benchmark against which at least people who are paying attention can evaluate the um, rigor or quality um, or alignment of their own, uh, their own assessment systems. Um, but, I, you know, I think the, you know, the more we might push on that string, the, again, the, the more pushback we might uh, uncover. So, you know, I'm, again, I think um, there was a dream that we would have uh, these uh, standards and assessments that would be aligned across all 50 states, even if they weren't totally identical. Um, but I feel like that dream is probably over. And I'm not sure it's worth, again, trying to open up uh, the argument again to go back to it. Uh, we need to have some kind of uh, national system so that it's not a race to the bottom or it's not, uh, at least states can't do their own thing um, in, a, in a bad way without some at least transparency about it. Yeah. But, you know, once again, I, I think the things that matter most in terms of actually moving the needle on student achievement and school performance are going to happen at a state level they're going to be different uh and that we don't want to necessarily be tied one state to the other in terms of the approaches and strategies that we use uh, i will say one other thing that you know hasn't come up but um uh in in some ways getting to to mike's uh, point which i was disparaging a little bit uh, i do think when it comes to reading in particular the teaching of reading in the early grades we have to take that on as directly as we can, certainly at a state level, but to the extent possible at a national level to make sure we are making a real difference in terms of the percentage of children, in particular low-income children of color who are reading on grade level or proficiently or whatever term we wanna use uh, by the time they get to third grade. Because uh, unless we solve that, and I think this um, this is the good news and bad news, this is something that we can and should be able to solve. you know, everything else is going to be that much harder, if not impossible.
0: Oh, absolutely agree. Um, I wanted to, some of the questions, we're going to go to the questions from the panelists, and a lot have to do with uh, accountability. You know, has it really changed outcomes? Has it really done anything? Um, and we're going to get to that. I wanted to talk about South Carolina a little, like, because we are a very conservative state. And what we did during the pandemic was to require formative assessments during the pandemic so that we could kind of monitor where our kids were. Um, And a lot of our districts did it. So we were able to use that data. And then we offered the end of the year summative assessment and encouraged districts. You would think that with an opportunity not to test, districts would say, no, we don't want to. 85% of students were tested even during the pandemic, because the districts liked having that data. They wanted to know where their students were. And, and the thing that's come out, which is um, is that the, the gaps have grown tremendously. And for, for South Carolina, one of the things that we prided ourselves on is accountability is part of closing those gaps. If you don't measure it, you can say you know where those gaps are in poverty, by race, but until you have that data, you can't prove it. And so for us, it's become an eye-opening experience to go, you know, we knew we had these gaps, but now the gaps are even more pronounced. And where we see the gaps more pronounced is in the area of math. If you don't have good quality teaching in the classroom, you cannot learn math. And I tried to tutor my kids a lot during those years, but you have to, be taught math so as we look ahead a lot of the questions that are coming in are about formative assessments how do you balance formative assessments versus summative is there a way that we can have both or how do you how would you respond to these questions? how can we have both and ensure that we still know at a certain point in time how our children are doing or are we in such an anti-testing mode still that we can't have that balance between formative. Should we have public disclosure of formative assessments? Um, Jim, I'm gonna start with you on that issue because that's a real tough one for state level.
2: I mean, again, I think there's a logic to it, which I totally accept. Um, I think the practical reality of it though is, uh, it makes it a non-starter. I mean, on the one hand, it's just the more testing, more testing, more testing. Uh, and on the other hand, it's more intrusive. So, you know, at least in Massachusetts, and I think this is true in a lot of places, at least one of the arguments that um, that we make in defense of the summative year-end test is, well, at least it doesn't, you know, it, it's trying to measure outcomes and it's not trying to tell you exactly what you have to do every day, every week, every month in a, in a classroom. Um, and a lot of people don't buy that argument. Like they say, well, you know, I, the, the fact that it only is only offered once a year and that, you know, with the exception maybe of uh, high school, 10th graders, it doesn't carry any consequences for the students. It still is sort of dictating what we need to teach in our classrooms. The reality is there's a lot of variation going on um, and people would, and educators and, you know, local communities and, and others would push back very strongly if we said, not only are we gonna test you once a year, but we're gonna start testing your kids, you know, three times a year to make sure that you are on track with where you, where we think you need to be at, every, at any particular point in time. So again, uh, intellectually, I get it. Um, I think educationally, it would be tremendously beneficial. I just think it would be a non-starter. Gotcha.
0: Mike, how would you respond to that?
3: Uh, Well, this is a very technical question that I'm not competent to answer, and we really need to get the testing experts in on this to just see the feasibility before we worry about the politics. Uh, Teachers are testing all the time. They do formative testing. Uh, So the idea that formative testing is more testing is maybe I think is not true. So the the. because I think there is a lot more testing going on in the system, and I'm interested that you had uh, such a good uptake on that in in South Carolina. Uh, The trick is to not require it at the state level, uh, but to be able uh, to have teachers option for formative testing that uh, somehow helps them meet the state uh, assessment and state standards. Uh, and, and, you know, we wouldn't get into uh, that. And there's also the concept of interim testing. That is in California, the state test, teachers were downloading it in, in literally in, in millions uh, and doing these interim tests, but that doesn't tell them how to reteach. That's again, temperature taking. I'm I'm, I'm, I'm telling you you have a problem. It doesn't tell you what to do about the problem or help you do anything about the problem uh, and then to to, to follow up with testing. So so, uh, I I think the interim assessment thing uh, is not what we're talking about. But whether we can get there, I don't know. Maybe it's an impossible dream. I, I'm a little bit more positive about, the, I'm more positive than Jim is about the politics of it if we could make it work.
0: Tucker, you wanna well, weigh in on
3: this one? Just briefly, there's some
1: ambitious efforts underway to, as they say, roll up the formative tests into a summative test. And that might take the place of a single big end of the year summative test. So if you can do that at the state level, then I'd say the roll-up ought to be a public document that is equivalent to what we put out now. Uh, The summative tests along the way that you're going to end up rolling uh, should probably be left to the individual teachers or schools to make the most of along the way uh, during the year, because that's what formative tests are supposed to do during the course of the year. Uh, is help them get better at what they're doing. But if you can roll it up and take the place of a big summative test, then sure, um, do it and then release that. Let the formative tests along the way stay basically out of public view.
0: Yeah, we've had that discussion here. Um, some of the concerns are, would, would you, everybody be teaching to a certain timeline? I mean, you, you know, if you've got those interim formative, you know, uh, would you have common, and that, that word is bad in South Carolina, anything common. We don't like Common Core. We don't like anything common. So you, 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 you think about that as far as the testing in this curriculum. And, you know, would you go to a common curriculum then? Would you? But on the other hand, you would have outcomes that are every child would at least have exposure to the same instruction, uh, you know, modules and things like that. One of the things that, that ESSA gave states, was the ability to use non-academic indicators, but to come up with non-academic indicators that were uh, reliable and valid. And that has been a challenge. I mean, we can't even define in our state what it means to be absent. I'll be truthful with you, it's been a disaster. What does attendance mean? Um, and, And try to explain that to my boss, the governor, and the legislators is a hard one. Do, can we measure non-academic, are you seeing any evidence that we can measure it or are those just uh, excuses that kind of evade the academic results? Jim, what about in Massachusetts, are you seeing that you were able to find some non-academic indicators?
2: Well, we, I mean, we have some non-test indicators. They, you know, I I don't think they necessarily tell us a lot. Uh, I think it does at least provide a little bit of balance to the scorecard, which uh, is helpful in terms of how they're viewed. Um, There's still, you know, obviously we're we're focused more on um, overall test performance, uh, improvement, student improvement, and in particular improvement of the bottom quartile of of students. And that really drives the vast, you know, majority of the accountability system. Um, And I do think there's... um, you know, there there are some really interesting data points, which unfortunately are lagging indicators of school performance. I think, Checker, you mentioned some of these in your paper, but we've done some research um, trying to determine the outcomes in terms of college enrollment, college completion, earnings, employment and earnings for students based on their MCAS results. Um, and what, what it shows is really quite encouraging and, and pretty dramatic, which is that students with similar MCAS scores um, have similar trajectories in terms of their outcomes. Um, and when gaps occur, uh, for example, racial and ethnic gaps um, between college enrollment and college completion, um, that you know, that's where you start to see that there are some things outside of the K-12 context that can have a big impact on those longer-term outcomes. So, in other words, students who have the same performance uh, on MCAS and who go to college at the same rates and then complete college at the same rates have the same, essentially the same employment and earnings outcomes. But there's a gap between the students who have, have those same MCAS scores, depending on their racial and ethnic group in terms of their college completion rates. So this is, again, my, I guess my point is, this is an example where the, the, the school system may be doing an equally good job with the same students. But the colleges, the higher education system or whatever, uh, once they get out, is creating a gap that, you know, obviously you can't hold the school accountable for.
0: That's good. Mike, in California, you have the great dashboard that you've used, um, non-academic indicators. What are you seeing as the future for that on our accountability system?
3: Well, we uh, our dashboard is set up where we have state indicators. Uh, those are mostly academic reclassification of limited English speaking, and then suspensions and things of that sort. Uh, but we have a local indicator system where locals can uh, send to us uh, what they're doing locally in areas that they want us to know about. And the biggest area there is, has been in our school climate, uh, and 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 we. But we have not, and I checker mentioned this, we have not agreed on any kind of standard statewide school climate measure. Haven't been able to do it. Uh, maybe haven't put enough R&D, in, uh, R&D research into it, but have not at this point. Uh, Social emotional learning is very popular out here. Uh, we have some, some big cities and, uh, that uh, use measurements of those. They put those in there local uh, uh, dashboards, uh, but they're only a a selective group. So, you know, we have this huge testing development industry, you know, uh, the ETS and uh, other organizations, ACT. We don't have the infrastructure building formative testing, climate, social, emotional, uh, and I think Uh, we need that is something the federal government might help with uh is to find you know with states don't fund enough r d and that might be something the federal role could really help on uh rather than trying to push for uniform uh, uh indicators
0: that's a great suggestion mike um we're out of time for today but before we close i want to thank each of you for your contribution and most importantly for your service to the children of your state and this country, thank you. Uh, A lot of great ideas and commentary that you shared today. Thank you to the audience who offered questions. And finally, thanks to all of you who joined the webinar today. Uh, We'll shortly post a recording of this session on the Hoover Education Success Initiative website at hoover.org. If you'd like to revisit the session or share it with friends, we'd love for you to do that. And you can also find recordings of the other installments of this series. So on behalf of HESI, thank you, everyone. Thank you, panelists. And I hope you have a great rest of the day.
2: Thank you, Millie. Thank you, Melanie. Thank you.
0: Thank you.